0: daily taking up your cross suffering and sacrificing have been superseded with name it and claim it and as dark as I know it looks out there the good news is that God is advancing his kingdom. And it's very exciting to be a part of His Great Commission. It's Sheila Zelinsky. The Sheila Zelinsky Show, the only show to give you the truth behind the headlines, prophecy, and the deeper things of God. Now. Here is your host, end-time watchwoman, Sheila Zielinski. Hello listeners, and welcome to this very special Friday edition of the Sheila Zielinski Show. I'm your host, Sheila Zielinski. I have a very special guest today. Folks, William Lau is my guest. He is a gifted man of God, and he's teaching on the Elijah Healing Challenge, which trains committed disciples, missionaries, and Servants of God to Proclaim the Kingdom of God Effectively to Gospel-Resistant People. It's been a pleasure to have him back on the program. William Lau, welcome. I'm just going to get you to take it away.
1: Okay. Thank you, Sheila. It's wonderful to be back with you again. We're going to start out with the Great Commission, since this training is basically to train servants of God and disciples how to fulfill the Great Commission. So, let's go directly to Matthew 28, 19 and 20 and look at the Great Commission. Here Jesus says, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, Jesus gave us the Great Commission 2,000 years ago. And I want to propose the question, if we look around at what is happening in the world today, does it seem like we are close to making disciples of all nations and thus fulfilling the Great Commission? No. If we just look at the resurgence of Islam around the world today, we know that we are not close to fulfilling the Great Commission. And some might even argue that we are losing ground. So what went wrong? And we're going to examine this issue this hour. We're going to look at one of the primary reasons for the failure of the Church to fulfill the Great Commission even after 2,000 years. Now, In the Great Commission, we are to make disciples of all nations. Now, to make disciples, we must, of course, preach the gospel to the lost, just as Jesus did and as he taught and commanded his disciples. So let's look at Mark 16 and see what Jesus said about preaching the gospel. Uh, In verse 15 of Mark 16, Jesus said, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation skipping a few lines and these signs will accompany those who believe in my name. They will drive out demons and then skipping down to verse 18. They will place their hands on sick people and they will get well. Now, according to Jesus, those signs should follow the preaching of the gospel, casting out demons and healing the sick. And we see that in the book of Acts because of the many miracles, which accompanied the preaching of the gospel, The word of God in Acts spread rapidly through the known world at that time. Now, today, today, do we generally see such miracles taking place when we preach the gospel here or on the mission field? And the answer is clearly no. Now, there are some preachers, some superstar preachers, when they preach the gospel, yes, miracles take place. But generally... When we unknown disciples go out and preach the gospel, we don't do those things. In fact, when we try to minister healing to the sick or cast out demons today when sharing the gospel with the lost, we we don't see anything resembling or even close to resembling what we see happening in the book of Acts. And usually, when we go out and preach the gospel, we don't even try to minister healing. We don't even try. Now, why is that? And we're going to look at this matter. Typically, when we minister to the sick, when we try to minister to the sick, especially in the context of sharing the gospel with the lost, and if if the sick are not healed, we will typically cite reasons including, well, it's not the will of God, or oh, the sick person lacks faith, or some might even throw in, well, I don't have the gift of healing. Now, did Jesus cite any of those reasons? And the answer is No. The sick to whom Jesus ministered were generally all healed, and so no explanations or excuses were necessary. So, where could the problem lie with us? Well, to answer that question, let's focus on how we, today, usually minister to the sick. When we minister to the sick, of course, it depends on our background, uh, whether it's evangelical or charismatic, But usually when we minister to the sick, it will involve prayer to God. We will pray directly to the Father and ask him to heal the sick. And depending on your background, you might even say something like, Hallelujah, thank you, Jesus, when you are ministering to the sick. If you happen to have a charismatic background, you might be speaking in tongues while you're ministering to the sick. And some might even say the following, Father, in the name of Jesus, we rebuke this infirmity, and command healing. So typically those four ingredients are involved when we minister to the sick. Now, if we look at John 14:12, we see that Jesus promises that we will do the works that Jesus did. So let's look at John 14:12 in which Jesus says, "Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing." It's clear. Whoever believes in Jesus will do the works that he did. So what works did Jesus do? Well, primarily, he preached the gospel, he healed the sick, he cast out demons, and he made disciples. Now, let me ask an important question here. Does John 14, 12 mean that we should do the works in the same way that Jesus did them? Should we be ministering to the sick in the same way that Jesus did? Should we be casting out demons in exactly the same way that Jesus did? Well, to answer that question, let me give you an illustration. Let's, for example, we're learning to perform some important skill from an expert instructor, like learning how to use a deadly firearm. Now, when we are learning from that instructor and then we try to do it ourselves, should we do it in just any way we feel like or should we handle that firearm in exactly the same way that our instructor does it? It is clear that In such a case, we better handle the firearm in exactly the same way that we see our instructor do it. If we do it in any way we feel, we could end up hurting someone. All right? And so it's the same way with ministering to the sick. Ministering to the sick is actually a weapon which we use when we are proclaiming the kingdom of God to the lost. It is a powerful weapon. And so we need to use this weapon in exactly the same way that Jesus did 2,000 years ago when he was proclaiming himself as the promised Messiah. So, let's examine exactly how Jesus ministered to the sick, which, of course, was for the purpose of proving to the lost that he was, in fact, the Christ, the promised Messiah, the Son of God. And then, after we study, the, after we discern the principles by which Jesus ministered to the sick, we should minister healing to the sick in the very same way, especially in the context of proclaiming the kingdom of God to the lost. John 20, verse 30, says, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. We know Jesus performed many miracles, and I believe most of them were of the nature of miraculous healings. Now, why did he perform so many miraculous healings? Verse 31, But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name it is clear that the miracles that Jesus did were recorded in this book so that the readers would believe that Jesus is in fact the promised Messiah and that by believing, they would have eternal life. So clearly, the primary purpose of the miracles which Jesus performed was to prove his identity as the Messiah so that people would believe on him as the Messiah, the very Son of God. And of course, Jesus promised that we will do the works that He was doing. So, exactly how did Jesus minister healing to the sick and the oppressed? We're going to look at the scriptures which showed Jesus ministering healing to the sick, and we're going to find out exactly how he did it. And we're going to compare it to the way we do it today, traditionally, in the church. We're going to look at Luke 4, verse 31. Then he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and was teaching them on the Sabbaths. Verse 32. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word was with authority. Now notice that the people there were astonished. Why? Because he spoke with authority. Now keyword here is authority. We're going to find out what kind of authority Jesus had and how he exercised it. Verse 33. Now in the synagogue, there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice saying, let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? All right. As Jesus is teaching in the synagogue, a man becomes terribly demonized and begins to manifest and scream and cry out and growl and who knows what else. And we want to see how Jesus handled the situation. Verse 35. Jesus rebuked him saying, be quiet and come out of him. All right. Let me repeat. Jesus rebuked the demon and commanded him, be quiet and come out of him. Now, let's ask a few questions. Number one, did Jesus pray for this man? Did Jesus pray earnestly for this man? And the answer clearly is no, Jesus is not praying to the Father. Rather, he's speaking directly to the demon, rebuking him, and issuing the command to be quiet and to come out of him. Question number two, did Jesus say, Father, we command this demon to be quiet and to come out of him? The answer is no. Jesus did not address his father at all. He spoke directly to the demon. Be quiet and come out of him. Question number three. Do you think Jesus closed his eyes? Normally when we minister to people, we close our eyes because it's so spiritual. Well, Jesus is not closing his eyes here because he's not praying to the father. If you're praying, it's fine to close your eyes if you want. But if you're rebuking an enemy... You never close your eyes. Your eyes remain open. You remain alert. Jesus did not close his eyes. Question number four. Was there any praise or thanksgiving or hallelujahs directed to the father? Something that we typically do when ministering to the sick or demonized. And the answer is no. There was no praise, no thanksgiving, no hallelujah, nothing at all directed up to his father. And what was the result of this action that Jesus took? It says, And when the demon had thrown him in their midst, it came out of him and did not hurt him. So the man was miraculously set free. Now, how did Jesus do this miracle? Was it through prayer? Absolutely not. Jesus did the miracle by exercising the authority given to him by his Father, which I believe he received when the Holy Spirit came upon him at the Jordan River. Authority? In Greek is exousia, and authority is not exercised by praying to God, but rather by issuing a command to that which is under your authority. Now, this is common sense. Verse 36, let's look at the reaction of the people. Then they were all amazed and spoke among themselves, saying, What a word this is! For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, And they come out. Now, why were the people amazed at what Jesus did? They were amazed because Jesus responded to this situation by, not by prayer, but instead by issuing a word, a command to this unclean spirit. Before Jesus came, whenever something like this came up, someone got demonized, all they could do would be pray to God, because clearly only God has authority over demons. But Jesus did not pray to God, but he spoke directly to the demon. He spoke words, be quiet and come out. He issued a command to the demon, and they came out, they obeyed his command. So these people knew that Jesus had God-like authority and power over the demon, such that he could command them, and they would obey him. Because Jesus was given authority over demons by his father, which I believe, as I said, he received at the Jordan River when the Holy Spirit came upon him, he did not need to pray and ask the father to heal the demonized man. He himself simply gave commands to the demons, ordering them to leave. And because they were under his authority, they obeyed. Therefore, we have a very simple principle here. Everyone understands this principle, but it is not understood in the church. And the principle is the following, authority is not exercised by praying to God, but rather by issuing commands to that which is under our authority. Let me give you a very simple illustration which everyone will understand. Let's say that someone has a pet dog at home. And of course, that pet dog should be under the authority of the master. If that pet dog is not under the authority of the master, it is the fault of the master, not of the dog. Let's say that the master wants the dog to sit. All right, how would he make the dog sit? Would he pray to Jesus? Oh, Jesus, nothing is impossible for you. I ask you to help me out here. I want my dog to sit. Lord, please make my dog sit. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Uh, does anyone pray to God, and ask God to make their dog sit? The answer is no. It's stupid to do that. If we want our dog to sit, we simply look at our dog and tell him to sit, and he sits. When we tell our dog to sit, we don't close our eyes. We don't say, Father, I command you to sit. We don't say, Hallelujah, thank you, Jesus, sit. We don't. There's no drama when we want our dog to sit. We simply issue the command, sit, and he sits there's nothing spiritual about this we're issuing a command to something under our authority it's very simple it's very straightforward now we are certainly not saying that jesus never prayed he prayed a lot sometimes he would pray overnight but we are saying that there were specific occasions on which jesus did not pray but rather issued commands and if we are going to do the works that jesus did we must learn when we should command and when we should pray. This has not been taught in the church. And this is one reason why we don't see much in the way of miraculous as we do in the book of Acts. We have not been trained to minister in this area. Verse 37 of Luke chapter 4, same chapter. And the report about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. So uh, Jesus' name began to spread because he was performing miracles. And that's why we are interested in this realm. When miracles take place in the name of Jesus, his name spreads. And so we see how Jesus dealt with a demon. Uh, demons are intelligent beings uh, although they have no bodies, and so when you give them a command, and uh, they hear the command, they understand the command at some level, and if they are under your authority, they will obey and they will leave. Uh, we understand that it makes sense uh, intellectually. Now, how did Jesus deal with Purely physical infirmities where no demon was involved. Alright? Now, with demons, okay, we get it. They're intelligent. We can rebuke them in Jesus' name. They're under our authority. They obey. But with physical infirmities, they're not intelligent. They cannot hear our commands. Let's say someone has a fever. Can you actually speak to the fever and rebuke it and command it to go? And we would think, no, of course not. The fever is not intelligent like a demon. You can't rebuke it. You can't tell it to go. Uh, no, all we can do for physical infirmities is pray to God and trust God and, and wait for God to heal the person. Okay, That's what we are taught, essentially, in the church. Now, let's see how Jesus dealt with a purely physical infirmity. Luke 4, same chapter, verse 38. It says, Jesus left the synagogue and went to the home of Simon. And Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever and they asked Jesus to help her. All right. Peter's mother-in-law is not demonized. She's simply sick, physically sick with a high fever. They asked Jesus to help her. Let's see what Jesus does. Verse 39. So he bent over her and rebuked the fever and it left her. Hmm. All right. Some questions are in order. Number one, did Jesus pray gently or pray passionately for her? And the answer is no. Jesus did not pray to the father, but he spoke directly to the fever, just as he had spoken to the demon earlier. He rebukes the fever just as he rebuked the demon earlier. Uh, Did Jesus say, Father, we rebuke this fever? No. He did not address his father at all. Did Jesus close his eyes? When ministering to the sick woman? No. He's not praying. If you're praying, you can close your eyes. But here, he is clearly not praying. He's speaking directly to the fever and rebuking it. Exactly what is he saying? Well, Scripture doesn't tell us, but he's rebuking the fever just as he rebuked the demon earlier, so I suspect he's saying something like, go, leave, to the fever. And it left her. Uh, was there Any praise or thanksgiving or dancing before the Lord as Jesus performed this action? And the answer is completely no. There was nothing, no action at all directed to the Father. Everything was directed to the fever. He bent over and rebuked the fever and it obeyed. Now, let me just go back to Luke 4 verse 35 with the incident in the synagogue. Let me read it. But Jesus rebuked him, meaning the demon, saying, be quiet and come out of him. Then they were all amazed for with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. They were all amazed at because he spoke with authority. And what did he speak? With authority and power. Okay. So we see that when Jesus dealt with this demon in the synagogue, Jesus simply rebuked the demon with what? Authority and power. And because the demon was under his authority, it obeyed and the man was set free. And that's what Jesus was doing for Peter's mother-in-law. He rebuked the fever with authority and power. Jesus is not using the gift of healing, but rather he's using something very different. Something scripture calls authority and power over infirmities. Where is the gift of healing mentioned in the New Testament? We find it in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul teaches about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And in a moment, we're going to find out the purpose of those gifts. But let me ask this question. When was the gift of healing, which is one of the nine gifts of the Holy Spirit, first available on earth? Well, the answer is on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit descended, he came bringing, among other things, the nine gifts of the Holy Spirit, among which was the gift of healing. And so, at the very earliest, the gift of healing was available only beginning the day of Pentecost. And so, which came first, the gift of healing or authority and power over infirmities? Clearly, Authority and power over infirmities came first. Because even in the Gospels, well before the day of Pentecost, Jesus was already using authority and power over infirmities and demons to heal people and to set them free. Authority and power was available first. Only later on the day of Pentecost was the gift of healing available. And so we see that authority and power are very different and distinct from the gift of healing. It's very important to understand that when you lump the two together, there's going to be problems. You're not going to see much happening. But when you understand that authority and power are different and distinct from the gift of healing, then we see that any disciple can be trained to minister healing to the sick and cast out demons in the context of preaching the gospel to the lost. Now, The Father had given Jesus authority over both demons and physical infirmities. When the Holy Spirit came upon him at the Jordan River, he received this authority over both demons and physical infirmities. So Jesus could issue commands to both demons and physical infirmities. Now, let's look at something else. Another kind of action which Jesus took when he ministered to the sick. Luke 4 verse 40. When the sun was setting, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. We see that often Jesus would touch and lay hands on the sick to heal them. Why? What was happening? Let's jump to Luke 6, verse 19, where it says, And the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. Now, where did Jesus get this power? This was clearly healing power, which flowed into the sick people when they touched him. Now, I believe Jesus received this healing power in the Greek dunamis when the Holy Spirit came upon him at the Jordan River. That's when Jesus received this healing power, this dunamis from his father. And this dunamis was resident within his body, his physical body. And so that's why he would lay hands on the infirm. When he did so, the healing power would flow into them to heal them. And that's why some sick people with great faith would touch Jesus. And then when they touched Jesus, the healing power flowed out of him into them to heal them. This is what happened to the woman with the bleeding in Mark chapter 5. Now, how does this apply to us disciples? Well, where does Jesus reside at this very moment through the Holy Spirit? And we know that Jesus lives in us. He lives in our physical bodies through the Holy Spirit. We are temple's of the Holy Spirit. Temples of God. And that is why. We disciples. Can also. Lay hands on the sick. To heal them. In accordance. With John fourteen twelve. We also. Can lay hands on the sick. And when we do. The healing power. Of Jesus Christ. Can flow into them. To heal them. And we have seen this happen. Over and over. And over again. This is Christ. In us. The hope. Of glory. And also. The hope of preaching the gospel. Just like he did. Now. With regard to the laying on of hands, often Jesus placed his hand precisely on or over the physical infirmity in order to be efficient in transferring the healing power directly to the infirm person where it was needed. For example, in Mark 7, Jesus ministered healing to a man who was deaf. Jesus inserted his fingers into the man's ears. It's a bit strange, but why did he do that? It was in order for the healing power to flow directly from Jesus into the man's ears to open them up. In Mark chapter 8, there is a blind man whom Jesus heals. Jesus touches him on his eyes. And as he touches his eyes, the healing power of Jesus Christ flowed into the man's eyes to open them up. And so often Jesus would lay hands on the sick precisely on the location of their infirmities. And so we should do what he did. Let's look At another instance of Jesus healing someone, Luke 5, verse 12, when Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. This is a physical infirmity. (laughs) Verse 13, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. Ah, what did we see Jesus doing? Laying hands on the man, making physical contact for the healing power to flow into the man. Power, the flow of healing power into the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Now, be clean, of course, is not a prayer to the Father, but it is a command directed at the leprosy. You see, Jesus had authority over the leprosy, and so he commanded it to be clean. So here we see Jesus doing both. He's exercising both power through the laying on of hands and authority by the issuing of a command. And so Jesus, again, did not pray for this man. Jesus did not say, Father, I command this man to be clean. Jesus did not close his eyes. There was no action directed to the Father, none at all. No hallelujahs, thank you Jesus, singing, dancing, no action of that kind at all. Nothing directed to the Father. It was completely directed to the man and to the leprosy. It was completely ground level. Now, is Jesus using the gift of healing here? No. No. As I mentioned before, he is still using power and authority. He's using power by laying hands on him. He's using authority by issuing a command to the leprosy to be clean. All right, again, I emphasize, gift of healing, very different from power and authority over disease and demons. And what was the result? And immediately the leprosy left him, Scripture says. One more instance of healing, Matthew 12, verse 9. It says, going on from that place, he went into their synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Verse 13. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. All right. Is Jesus praying to the father with all of his heart? No, he's not praying to the father. He's commanding the man to stretch out his hand. Did Jesus say, Father, we command this man to stretch out his hand. No. He spoke directly to the man. He did not call upon his father first. He did not close his eyes. There is nothing at all directed to the father. It is completely directed to this man with the shriveled hand. And again, he is not using the gift of healing. How do we know? Because he is clearly using authority. He is commanding this man to stretch out his hand, which means he is exercising authority. The gift of healing does not operate by issuing a command, but the gift of healing might operate through a priestly action like prayer or worship or praise, or even through a prophetic action. And what was the result of this action? Scripture says, he stretched it out and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. And so we can see now that this authority and power over disease is very distinct from the gift of healing. Let's go over the four major differences between the two. Number one, of course, the authority and power to heal was available in the Gospels well before the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came bringing the gifts, including the gift of healing. Number two, there is a difference in frequency. Every believer is given this authority according to John 14, 12, while not every believer was given the gift of healing. 1 Corinthians 12.30, Paul says, do all have gifts of healing? And the answer is no. But every believer is a witness of Jesus Christ. Therefore, every believer is given a measure of this power and authority in order to proclaim the kingdom of God to the lost. Okay, We're going to see more about this power and authority in a moment. There's a difference in operation. The authority only operates by the issuing of a command, by definition. But as I mentioned before, the gift of healing could operate through a priestly action or a prophetic action. And finally, there is a difference in function. According to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, which we will read in a moment, the gift of healing is primarily for ministry to the church, primarily for ministry to sick believers, while by contrast... Authority and power over diseases, demons, is given primarily for the preaching of the gospel to the lost. The difference in function differs greatly. Let's look at the scriptures so this point can be demonstrated more clearly. Let's first look at the gift of healing. We're going to turn to 1 Corinthians 12, verse 4, where Paul teaches about the gift of healing. And Paul says, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same spirit. Verse 7, now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good, meaning for the common good of the church, the body of Christ. That's the very context of this chapter. So, the gifts of the Holy Spirit are given for building up the church, building up believers. Therefore, the gifts are for ministering to believers. And in verse 8, Paul lists word of wisdom, word of knowledge. To gifts of the Holy Spirit, and verse 9 he mentions gift of faith and gifts of healing. And so it is clear that these gifts, including the gift of healing, is primarily for ministering to believers, building up the body, meaning gift of healing, primarily for ministering to sick believers. Finally, first Corinthians 14, 12. Paul says, so it is with you. Since you are eager to have spiritual gifts, try to excel in gifts that build up the church. So gifts are primarily for building up the church. And so it's clear that the gift of healing is primarily for ministering healing to sick believers. And that's good. Now, power and authority, by contrast, are different. Their function is very different from the function of the gift of healing. Luke 9 verse 1. Scripture says, when Jesus had called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. All right, verse 2, for what purpose? He sent them out to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. So we see here that power and authority given to the twelve over diseases and demons was not primarily for ministering to sick believers. There were no sick believers, but the primary purpose was to be sent out to preach the kingdom of God to the lost and to heal the sick. So we see a very important difference in the functions of the gift of healing on one hand and the power and authority over disease and demons on the other hand. The primary purpose of authority and power over disease and demons is for demonstrating to the lost through the miraculous that Jesus Christ is the Son of God the Savior of the world. And our task in the Elijah Challenge is to teach disciples to minister healing in this very context of proclaiming the gospel to the lost. And that is exactly the same context in which Jesus and his early disciples ministered. When Jesus came, he did not come to build up the church. There was no church. He came to save the lost. And that's why he performed miracles in order for the lost to believe on him as the Messiah. And we should be doing the very same thing. According to John 14, 12, we should be doing the very works that Jesus did in exactly the same way as Jesus did. And that's, that's our mistake. Instead of ministering as Jesus did, we've been ministering as we see preachers on TV or as we see our leaders in church. And where did they learn it? Yeah, they learned it from someone on TV, most likely. And this way of ministry is actually a tradition, and it bears very little resemblance to the way Jesus ministered to the sick and demonized in the Gospels. And so what we're doing is we're simply going back to the Bible, we're simply going back to the Gospels, we're just going back to Jesus and doing the works in exactly the same way he did. Let's look at Luke 9, verse 1 again. Let me repeat it. When Jesus had called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. So, he gave them this power and authority, this power and authority which which he had been using to drive out demons and to cure diseases. Now, he delegated it to the twelve. And verse 2, he sent them out to preach the kingdom of God to the lost, obviously, and to heal the sick. Notice that Jesus did not command them to pray for the sick. No. He commanded them to heal the sick, meaning just as he did using this power and authority. It may surprise you to know that nowhere in any of the four Gospels did Jesus command his disciples to pray for the sick as we do traditionally today in the church. But time and time again, he would command them to heal the sick as they proclaim the kingdom of God. Jesus did not command his disciples to pray for the sick when he sent them out to preach the kingdom of God to the lost. He commanded them to heal the sick. But why is it that most believers today would rather pray for the sick instead of healing the sick? Well, what's the difference between the two? Which one is, quote, unquote, easier and less risky, especially when done in front of a crowd or done in public? Healing the sick or praying for the sick? Well, obviously, praying for the sick is much less risky, because when you're praying for the sick, all you're doing is asking God to heal the sick, and the responsibility is on him. So after we pray to God for a sick person, if the person is not healed, we simply blame God. We say it's not God's will, and we're off the hook. We haven't failed in any way. God has failed. We say it's not his will. But when we try to heal the sick in the name of Jesus, using his power and his authority, goodness, it would appear that especially when we're doing it in front of a crowd of people, we are taking a risk. And I believe that many of the people who are listening to me right now have in fact tried to use this power and authority to heal the sick, and they have failed generally. Nothing happens when you say, be healed in Jesus' name. There's no change, there's no miracle, and how do you feel when you fail? You feel embarrassed. You've made a fool out of yourself in front of those people. You commanded a healing in Jesus' name. Nothing happened. We've all been burned in this way, and so many of us have decided to forget this power and authority in commanding business. Let's just go back to praying for the sick. It's much more spiritual. Yes, (laughs) the problem is Jesus never commanded us to pray for the sick. He commanded us to heal the sick. Now, I'm certainly not forbidding people to pray for the sick, certainly not, God forbid, but I am saying, we are not doing as Jesus commanded. We're not healing the sick as Jesus commanded. Let's look at verse 6 from same chapter, Luke 9. What did they do? They set out and went from village to village preaching the gospel and healing people everywhere. They actually obeyed the Lord They went from village to village, they were preaching the gospel, and they were not just praying for sick people everywhere. They were actually performing miraculous healings on people in those villages. And that's what we should be doing today. We're not doing this today. We have failed. And we're going to find out why we fail. Now, why is it important to heal people when we are preaching the gospel? Because the miraculous healings can open up the heart of the lost to the gospel. And even bring the backslidden back to the Lord. Now, what if you are not an apostle, as were the 12? They were the big boys, all right? Peter, John, and so forth, those were the big boys. Well, not surprising, they had this power and authority. What about ordinary disciples like you and me? Well, look at Luke 10, verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 70 others who were not apostles, just ordinary disciples like you and me, and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. Now, did Jesus give to these 70 disciples any of this power and authority? Look at verse 9. Skip to verse 9. Look at what Jesus commanded them to do. Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God is near you. Obviously, when he commanded them to heal the sick, it means that he gave them a measure of power and authority to do so when he sent them out to preach the kingdom of God. Skip to verse 17. The 70 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name, which means Jesus also gave them authority over demons. So what conclusion do we draw? Well, we see that the 12 were given this power and authority when they were sent out to preach the gospel. The 70 were also given this power and authority when they were sent out to preach the gospel. We conclude that any disciple who is sent out to proclaim the kingdom of God to the lost receives a measure of this power and authority. And how many of us are sent out as witnesses to the world? Every one of us, every disciple is sent out to the world as a witness of Jesus Christ. So we can conclude that every disciple has been given a measure of this supernatural authority and power over disease and demons for sharing the gospel to the lost. But why does usually nothing happen when we try to minister to the sick using power and authority as Jesus did? What are we doing wrong? that when we try to use his power and authority, usually no one is healed. Now, Usually we'll blame the sick person for lacking faith. We'll tell the sick person to claim their healing by faith and trust God. But did Jesus ever tell infirm people who came to him to simply claim their healing, and later they would receive their healing? Did Jesus ever, often or ever do that? No. He actually performed the healing on the spot. Generally, that was the case. Now, Let's find out why is it that we fail. Let's examine the consequence of little faith, not in the sick person, but in the one who is ministering the healing. That's the problem. That's why we fail. And so we're going to look at Matthew 17, beginning with with verse 14, at the incidents where Jesus rebukes his disciples severely and harshly when they fail to perform the miracle of casting a demon out of a boy. Verse 14. When they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son. He said, he has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. All right. They failed to heal the boy. Now, I don't think the father lacked faith here. I, From the context, it seems he brought his son to the disciples of Jesus fully expecting his son to be healed and when they failed he ran to Jesus and he tattled on them and look at the response of Jesus when he heard this very poor report he said oh unbelieving and perverse generation Jesus replied how long shall I stay with you how long shall I put up with you Mind you, Jesus was not talking to the Father. He was talking to his disciples. Now, clearly, Jesus expected his disciples to be able to heal the boy. And when they failed, he rebuked them severely. Now, this contrasts greatly with the stand of the church today. We do not expect believers to be able to perform miracles. In fact, We say, of course, believers cannot perform miracles. Only God can perform miracles. If we need a miracle, all we can do is pray to God and trust God to do the miracle. In this case, we see Jesus completely overturning our tradition. He clearly expects his disciples to be able to heal the boy. When they fail, he is so disappointed, he rebukes them severely and calls them unbelieving perverts and says, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? So his Teaching in this area contrasts sharply with the traditions we have been taught. All right? Now, how can we understand Jesus' expectation and demand that his disciples be able to heal this boy? Well, it's quite simple. Number one, they were his disciples and were being trained to do what he did. Jesus would go from place to place, preaching the gospel, healing the sick. His disciples followed him and they were observing him as he did those things and they were clearly learning to do the things that he did, meaning preaching the gospel and healing the sick. And I'm sure Jesus was teaching them how to heal the sick as he did. He was called rabbi, teacher. And then we see in verse nine, excuse me, we see in Luke nine, Luke 10, he called them and gave them authority to heal the sick and cast out demons. He gave them, he delegated to them this power and this authority over diseases and demons, and then he sent them out and commanded them to heal the sick. And so, based on those reasons, we see that Jesus was fully justified in his disappointment, in his expectation, in his anger at his disciples, when he heard that they had failed, completely justified. Can we apply the same to the church today? Does Jesus expect us to obey his command to heal the sick as we proclaim the kingdom of God? And the answer must be absolutely. What Jesus commanded his disciples in the gospels, he commands us today. And then, going back to the scripture, it says, Bring the boy here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of the boy, and he was healed from that moment. Now, we see that Jesus stepped in and performs the miracle, not by praying to the Father, but by rebuking the demon, just as he rebuked the demon and the man in the synagogue. Now, I'm sure the disciples also rebuked the demon, but they failed. And we want to find out, why did the disciples fail? When Jesus succeeded? Well, verse 19. Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, why couldn't we drive it out? Now that is the question to which we need answers. Now, typically, when people are not healed, we will give four reasons. We will say it's not God's will, it's not God's time, sick person has sinned, sick person lacks faith. And I'm not saying these reasons never apply. They might apply sometimes, okay? The problem is, whenever we say it's not God's will, not God's time, we are essentially blaming God. When we say it's sick person lacks sin, sick person lacks faith, we are essentially blaming the sick person. Notice that we never blame ourselves, When the sick person does not take place. So convenient. Now, what reason did Jesus give in this particular situation to explain why the miracle didn't take place? Let's find out. Verse 20. He replied, because you have so little faith. In the King James, it says, because of your unbelief. So whose fault was it that the miracle did not take place? It was clearly the fault of his disciples for having little faith. And we want to find out what kind of little faith they had such that they failed, okay? And so, let's just continue with what Jesus said to them. Let me repeat verse 20. Because you have so little faith. I tell you the truth. If you have faith as a mustard seed. Now, he did not say faith as small as a mustard seed as rendered in the NIV, The Greek does not support that. He said faith as a mustard seed. You know, faith as small as a mustard seed is very little faith, correct? Jesus just rebuked them for having little faith. So Jesus is not saying that they can have faith as small as a mustard seed. What he is saying is that they need to have faith with the nature of a mustard seed. And we don't have time to go into that. But he is not saying that it's okay to have faith as small as a mustard seed. The King James has it right. In the King James, it says, if ye have faith as a grain of mustard seed. That's the correct translation. All right. Let me just go back to verse 20. Let me repeat it. He replied, because you have so little faith, I tell you the truth. If you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. So the reason why they failed was because they lacked faith as a mustard seed. They lacked mountain-moving faith. If they had mountain-moving faith, they could command the mountain to move from here to there, and the mountain would obey and move. Nothing would be impossible for them. So clearly, the disciples failed because they did not have faith as a mustard seed or mountain-moving faith, which can move mountains. Now, verse 21, But this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. What did Jesus mean by that? Jesus meant that when you pray and fast, your faith increases your mountain-moving faith increases to the point where you can cast out demons successfully. So prayer and fasting indeed are very important. They are preparation for us to move the mountain, to heal the sick, to cast out demons. But the prayer and fasting in themselves do not result in the miracle, but they prepare us to move the mountain, to perform the miracle. Now, let's look more closely at mountain-moving faith. Luke 7, verse 2. We're going to understand what is the nature of mountain-moving faith. Luke 7, verse 2, There a centurion servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. Verse 3, The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. All right, this uh, centurion, he's a God-fearing Gentile. His servant is dying. He hears about Jesus, and he asks Jesus to come to his home to heal his servant face-to-face. Verse 6, skipping to verse 6, so Jesus went with them. Jesus said, okay, I'm coming to your house. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. The centurion changes his mind. Perhaps he remembers that he is a Gentile while Jesus is a Jew, and that Jews are actually not supposed to associate with Gentiles. He wants to honor Jesus, so he says, Lord... You don't have to come to my house. I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. Verse 7, the last half of verse 7. But say the word and my servant will be healed. Now, did the centurion ask Jesus to pray for his servant? And this is what we always do. When someone who is dear to us is sick, we'll ask our pastor, we'll ask our brothers and sisters uh, to pray for our sick relative. Did Did the centurion ask Jesus to pray for his servant? No. He just said, say the word, and my servant will be healed. Well, say what word? Clearly, say something like, be healed. Just give the command from a distance and my servant will be healed. Just say the word. Just like the word that he spoke to that man in the synagogue. Be quiet and come out of him. They were amazed because his word was with authority. Just say the word of authority. Now, let's see what kind of understanding this centurion had such that he did not ask Jesus to pray for his servant. Verse 8, for I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. Now, this man, being a centurion, was in the military. He had authority over soldiers, perhaps a hundred soldiers. Now, this man, being in the military, he understood very well the nature of authority because that's how the military runs. There's a chain of command, it operates by authority. And look what he said next. He said, I tell this one go, and he goes. I tell that one come, and he comes. I tell my servant do this, and he does it. Now, just reflecting on the words that he said, let me ask this question. Did this centurion have any doubt at all that men under his authority would obey his commands? And the answer is no, he had no doubt. I tell this one, go, and he goes. I tell my servant, do this, and he does it. This man had no doubt whatsoever that men under his authority would obey his commands. You see, being in the military, he understood exactly the nature of authority. Now, look at Jesus' unusual reaction to the centurion's words. Look at what Jesus said. Verse 9, When Jesus heard this, He was amazed at him. When Jesus heard those words, he was amazed at him. What words? When I told my servant, do this, he does it. When I say, come, he comes. Jesus was amazed at those words. Why? Well, because he knew that this centurion had no doubt. Jesus was amazed at him, and turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. All right. Jesus was amazed at this man's faith. He hadn't seen anyone else in all of Israel with the faith of this centurion. Okay? Now, we want to understand this. What kind of great faith did this man have that Jesus did not see anywhere else even in Israel? Let's answer this question. This is important. You got to get this. Now, of course... He had faith that Jesus could heal his servant. That's that's obvious. What was so different about the faith of the centurion, which completely amazed Jesus? There clearly was another dimension to the faith of the centurion. And it was the following. Because he understood authority, he knew exactly how Jesus could heal his servant at a distance. He knew how Jesus did it. Jesus can simply could simply say the word, issue a command at a distance. And the infirmity would have to obey and leave. Because obviously authority is not affected by distance. When Jesus issued the command to the infirmity, he had no doubt that it would obey him. Just like the centurion had no doubt that men under his authority would obey his commands. The centurion understood exactly how Jesus could perform this miracle. He just spoke with authority with no doubt. And of course, whatever is under your authority must obey. The person who truly understands authority will have no doubt that those things under our authority must and will obey our commands. Again, if you really understand authority, you'll have no doubt that those things under our authority must and obey our commands. And what's under our authority as disciples of Jesus Christ? We have authority over diseases and demons when proclaiming the kingdom of God to the lost. Now, Jesus equated this unusual understanding of authority in the centurion with great faith. This is what we call faith without a doubt or mountain moving faith, as we shall see in a moment. Now, what happened to the servant of the centurion when this man, when Jesus spoke the word, verse 10, Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. Now, in the same way, we disciples have authority over disease and demons. Therefore, we have no doubt that they will obey our commands to go, especially when we are sharing the gospel. That is mountain-moving faith, or faith as a mustard seed. Turn to Mark 11, verse 23. Jesus said, I tell you the truth. If anyone says to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. That is mountain-moving faith. That is faith as a mustard seed. The way we minister to the sick betrays the doubt which is in our hearts. And because of the doubt, the mountain does not move, the demon does not go, the sick are not healed. Therefore, let us give up these ways by which we have been ministering to the sick in the past and let us learn to minister as jesus did when we have no doubt that diseases and demons are going to obey us we don't need to go through all of the drama the the worship the praise the singing the dancing the speaking in tongues that's no longer needed all we need to do is issue a command just say the word and it's done if we understand our authority and we speak The command with no doubt.
0: Wow. Well, thank you for giving us this incredible teaching today. William, tell our listeners about your event coming up in April. Okay.
1: In April, this will be uh, April 17 to 19. It's Friday to Sunday in Chicago. We will be holding the Elijah Challenge training, and we invite people to come. We're going to go through all of this training from beginning to end, and so we invite people to come to get this training And uh, when they come to the training, they will have hands-on opportunities to minister to the sick. What we do is at the end of each session, we will have a demonstration, and I will show you how to lay hands on the sick to heal them. And many people will be healed, and you will go home a changed person. You will go home with great confidence, with great faith, and no more doubt. If you want to register for this training, uh, please go to our website. This is www.theelijahchallenge.org. You see on the homepage, you will see Chicago Training Event. You click on the link and you will find out how to register. It's free. Freely we have received and freely give. So please join us. I believe it will be a historic event and many good things will be happening.
0: Folks, you can go to weekendvigilani.com. All William's information is linked there, equipping the saints for the Great Commission. I think it's so powerful. William, thank you so much for coming on the program today.
1: You're most welcome, Sheila. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Folks, go to weekendvigilante.com again. The information is linked there. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Listen every day from 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern Time right here on WWCR. And don't forget to shoot me an email. Good night and God bless. The Sheila Zelinsky show is sponsored by stevequail.com, offering a wide variety of products, links, headlines and information for the end times. Order Steve's new book Little Creatures by visiting stevequail.com. Dare to discover, learn, prepare and be amazed.